Hi everyone, this is Sneha Chowdhury and you are listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. Today, I'm speaking with the incredible Rohini Lakshmi Kosoglu. Rohini is the former deputy assistant to the president and domestic policy advisor to the vice president in the Biden-Harris White House. And not to mention the first Asian American woman to ever hold this role. In this episode, we're going to talk about Rohini's journey in public service from starting out as a mail manager for Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan to eventually playing a critical role in the White House. We're also going to talk about the importance of diverse perspectives in leadership and the lessons she learned from being the chief of staff of Vice President Kamala Harris's historic presidential campaign. Rohini has some really inspirational things to say, and I'm really excited for you all to tune in. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Rohini. I'm so excited that you're here today. Thanks for having me. So... Let's start with the beginning of your career. You started your career in the mailroom. Can you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day was like? How did you transition from the mailroom to your first big break? And was there any time that you ever considered giving up and maybe doing something different? Well, the mailroom, working in the mailroom in the United States Senate um, right out of college was for me my first big break. My family is from New Jersey and we didn't have really any connections in DC. There was no people to email about my resume or anything like that. I really just was able to, in my last year of school, start interning in Senator Stabenow of Michigan, her state office. And I got to see what it was like in a state, what a senator does when they're not in D.C., and just the people that they're able to help. And so that's everything from literally cutting out press clips in the morning, which is for people that were not solely relying on email is still um, part of the trade to this day. (laughs) Um, But going through the morning newspapers, cutting out clips, faxing them to Washington, D.C., Um, Also traveling around with the regional directors where I was able to go around the different different parts of the state and see the events that would happen on behalf of the senator, the people that they were representing, the constituents. So many people would call in about so many different issues and the staff would work so hard to try and make sure that they were representing the senator in the best way possible. And so that was really eye-opening for me. When I came to D.C., I was so excited to be part of her office in the DC setting. And you could not have found a happier mail manager walking around, (laughs) making sure that people had their mail, that we were going through the mail in the morning, both postal, people were emailing in, and they just had such a variety of concerns. People would share their life with her in terms of what their daily struggles were. And I thought it was a real honor to get to essentially open up their mail, but essentially get a window into their life and how the senator at the time might be helpful to them. 
That is really interesting. And it, it, it does sound like such an intimate look into people literally sharing their life story with the senator and you kind of being the conduit for all of that. So you mentioned growing up in New Jersey, you're the daughter of Sri Lankan immigrants. You grew up in a predominantly white town, which I'm also from New Jersey and also grew up in a predominantly white town. So I found this really relatable. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your elementary and middle school and high school experience was like and how that maybe shaped your perspective of both the world, but also of yourself? Yeah, um, you know, yes, I'm the proud daughter of immigrants and watching them grow up in the town that we were in, but watching my family essentially try and assimilate into the culture, but also understanding that there was going to be many a classrooms where I was the only one that looked like myself and the only one that had my lived experiences. And I didn't have a group of people to necessarily share a lived experience with in terms of my food or culture that, you know, at the same time, it also gave me a real understanding about other people's lived experience, other people's culture, And at the end of the day, some of the values that we still shared about living in a small town by the Jersey Shore and growing up with that sense of the local businesses, the the Mm -hmm. vibrancy of the community, that certainly impacted my youth. But I find that a lot of times I meet young people from all over and they are trying to navigate, you know, what should I do when I'm the only person that sounds like me or talks like me or lives like me. And I do think that those lived experience that a lot of us have where we may have been the only one that looked like us, even from a childhood age, is really helpful in helping to make better policy because there are people around the country, whether they're in classrooms or in the at their workplace, that are feeling like, hey, I'm the only person that has this thought, or I'm the only person that has this feedback, and hopefully it gives them some comfort and strength that there are a lot of us out there that have gone through that and that we are, you know, behind you and supporting you. Yeah, absolutely. And it almost makes those diverse perspectives even more important, despite how difficult they might be to share, because like you said, we're representing so many other people who don't have a voice in policy and aren't able to be in those rooms where the decisions are being made. Yeah. And I think for so many people, you know, their parents came, especially um, children of immigrants, their parents came, the parents may not have felt empowered yet with their own American government. And so those kind of experiences where now we are trying to make sure and we're fighting for people to have a voice that may have felt marginalized or may be overlooked is a really important quality to have when you're making policy. And so um, I feel really proud about that. Yeah, definitely. So kind of in the same vein of talking about the importance of perspective and diversity in government, in an earlier conversation, when you came to speak with my class, we spoke about your frustrations around wanting to work at the Obama White House and not being given the opportunity to do so. I feel like for a lot of students, this is such a relatable position where you're working so hard. You feel like maybe your peers around you are getting the opportunities that haven't come your way yet. How do you maintain confidence and optimism when you maybe feel like you're not being given that opportunity to move to the next step, even when you know you're qualified to do so and you're 
kind of doing everything in your power to prepare yourself for the next step. Sure. I used to joke during, um, in my, some of my younger years, I mean, the amount I would spend just on coffees (laughs) with, um, people to, to do these informational interviews and get a better sense and understanding of a system that, um, frankly, most of us, um, that have not lived in the DC area or have connections, it is just Mm -hmm. harder to break in. And there's going to be for, so many students, a time period where, or just those starting out in their career and trying to move up times where you feel like you don't understand the system. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you have to, to put yourself out there and keep doing those coffees and um, Zooms. Now there wasn't Zoom back then. Um, <laughs> I wish there was, but um, it was just a lot of money spent on coffees. And like, <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, and so what I think is you know, important as a takeaway is that, you know, some part of this, particularly in the world of policy and politics and communications, is really understanding how to be okay with not knowing the next step. Um, Because usually for most people, when they get to the next step, they feel like, oh, that did make sense. You know, I didn't end up working in XYZ office, but I ended up getting a much better fit for me working for, you know, somebody else. And it, and it Mm -hmm. does really seem to work out. And over years, you know, over time you build up a career, whether or not you're thinking about it. And so um, the, the, the hard part is to keep at it, but certainly Mm -hmm. most people, I think when you look at their careers have run into some type of adversity in terms of not knowing the next step, not Mm -hmm. feeling like it's the right next step or you can't get this next step you want to get to and managing yourself and your anxiety during that time is just as much of a challenge and opportunity as, as, as if things were to come so easily to you. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely seems like that adversity makes you much stronger because when you're working that much harder for your next step, I feel like it means so much more than if it was just handed to you. It's exactly right. And so, you know, what's different is when I was uh, starting out versus now, I think young people have, you know, more access to technology and they have, Mm -hmm. and and the information flow is so much greater in terms of quickly Googling and getting huge amounts of information about the different paths in front of you. You can also feel analysis paralysis. Like there are so many what's the right path to pick and managing that part of yourself where you feel like there are so many different choices and how do you pick just one is not easy. And that is half the battle, particularly, I remember sitting down, I must've been closer to 30 and an older mentor of mine was like, I remember being your age and I remember the anxiety that's coming with you. And you just have to keep telling yourself it's going to be okay. And I thought it was yeah. such great advice because now that I'm not 30 anymore, <laughs> I feel like um, I hope, hopefully can pass that down. Little did that younger version of Rohini know she would go on to be more than just okay. After over a decade in the Senate, Rohini was thinking about pivoting to the private sector, but 
At the same time that she was considering leaving the Hill, the new junior senator from California had just arrived on the scene. Senator Kamala Harris. Senator Kamala Harris. Our new U.S. Senator Kamala Harris! Early on, did you have any idea of how far this was going to go? Could you have ever imagined... (laughs) Could you have ever imagined that Vice President Harris would be just that? She would be the Vice President of the United States of America. Um, yeah, like I said, I had no <laughs> idea. I was about to pursue a path in the private sector. Um, I had been over a decade in the Senate, um, and I could not find the right fit in the Obama administration. and. So I just thought like, well, this would be a good time to go into the private sector. Donald Trump was elected. And when he was elected president, I I did have several private sector offers. I also then at the urging of a friend, put my name in to help start up her office. And I met her. And um, oddly enough, it was the first time I saw a senator that reflected even part of my own identity and, Mm -hmm. um, and just, you know, I really wanted to make sure that she was successful. I had all these years of Senate experience Mm -hmm. and I, I had family in California. I had been there so many times for holidays and, and the, the state of California was definitely, um, apologies. That is my, um, (laughs) three-year-old, but anyways, you know, so I met her and I just, she, I knew she wanted to be successful and good at this. Um, And so it was important to me that um, I decided to be a part of that and that team. Yeah. So, so like you mentioned, you literally started up her office. So what were some of the early challenges that your operation faced, particularly as her being the junior Senator, a woman of color and someone who was serving the people of California? Yeah, so for for starting up her office, one of the things that we definitely were looking for in terms of personnel and um, people and human capital was definitely people that understood the environment that we were going to be in. Because starting up an office where you don't have any full procedures yet, you're making them up mm-hmm. as you go, you're figuring out the team structure that all takes definitely special personalities that are willing to put in the work to stay mm-hmm. later than is normal because again you don't have the infrastructure that you normally do mm-hmm. with an with an office and making sure that you know we found people that really were passionate about the mission and the the culture of the office and that we were trying to build something that were forgiving about um, certainly there were late nights. There were hearings that came up sooner than possible, uh, largely because there was a lot of nominee Trump administration nominees that were getting mm-hmm. And so it was just so much more fast paced than a normal Senate office. And so it was the beginning of a new administration and administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can remember, I think one of the first things that President Trump did at the time was the Muslim ban um, yeah. that affected a huge amount of people in California. And so just things like that, where you're trying to also confirm, you know, make sure you're doing the process to confirm nominees. There was the Russia investigation going on at the time. Mm -hmm. They were just things that people, if 
they had seen a job description would not <laughs> imagine that they would be a part of or be asked to work on, but it came with the territory and we had such a great team that was able to yeah. just be just soldiers about it. Absolutely. And the, the term soldiers is so interesting because I was just going to say, it sounds like you were literally in crisis for basically those whole four years. So is there any particular anecdote that you can remember that was maybe the time that at the time felt incredibly stressful, but now as you're looking back, you're like, I can't believe that we actually went through that together. Yeah, the part that people, uh, you know, can't, it's it's hard to get a fuller sense of is certainly before and during some of these hearings that would take place. And so people would watch then Senator Harris, who only had five minutes, uh, give her mm-hmm. speech about what, you know, her, her questions that she was going to ask the nominees or, you know, the witnesses involved for the hearing. And the lead up to those um, hearings was tremendous because even after she had started to make a name for herself in terms of really pointed questions and being able to hone in on the heart of what we were discussing at the hearing. People also had an expectation that every time we would, she would go to a hearing and that she also would always be able to do that. And so that put, also puts a lot of pressure on your team. And it was, I think, part of my job and others to make sure that the team did not take on that pressure and that they felt that they could really just focus in on, okay, as she would say, you know, why are we here today? Why are we using this five minutes? And there were definitely times that we would be working on things with her right up until the last second before she had to walk out the door. And, you know, you like in any workplace at the end of the day, okay, you make the changes then the printer gets jammed up and people are just screaming <laughs> at a printer and then they're running down hallways trying to get um, the questions to her. There were so many times that it was like these hearings almost, what, the, what you saw on TV didn't almost yeah. happen because, I mean, it took just, I mean, some of these, some of these younger people, thank God they were working out all the time <laughs> and then like running to the hearing. Amazing. Um, with the updated questions and, you know, then there would be printer malfunctions. We, I mean, it was all sorts of things. People would be like kicking this printer um, <laughs> and it was so big. It was a big, huge printer. And of course it just, printers have no sense of when you're supposed For urgency. to. Urgency. When you're in an emergency. And so it would just be like, no, and you'd just be oh waiting. Oh my gosh. People would be sweating. Um, but it was, <laughs> you know, you look back on it and it was actually very fun and in the moment. Yeah. And so after a lot of these times, there was a huge period of relief and just camaraderie, but we all knew that we were in it together. And um, yeah. there is certainly a sense that at any given time, we we were running around or in you know supporting each other so those were definitely memories I will remember for a long time yeah it sounds like you guys were a family yes like Rohini mentioned then Senator Harris's powerful questioning of Trump appointees at Senate hearings was starting to garner a lot of attention and that was just the beginning by 2018 Harris had emerged as a rising star in the Democratic Party 
After years of speculation on whether or not she would run for president, VP Harris decided to throw her hat in the ring. I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president of the United States. Let's talk about preparing a woman of color candidate, not only for debates, but for the presidential campaign as a whole. So what are some things that you had to take into consideration when thinking about presentation, speeches, and policy that maybe white male candidates don't have to consider when they run for president? Uh, Well, I think there's a ton of research out there that shows that women that are running for anything or holding elected office are held to certainly a higher standard when it comes to what the public expects and what they want to see. And so, you know, research shows that that people don't really love to see women that that may be able to that could come to a campaign event or a government event and, you know, their hair is all over the place, their clothes aren't sort of well put together. That's important to them. So basically that mm-hmm. overall concept of presentation. That I think for any person that's worked for a female elected official, someone that is running fully has to understand that that is part of the uh, world that they live in. And so the Mm -hmm. extra time that it takes to do hair, sometimes makeup, you know, Mm -hmm. all of those things before they go for big interviews, for big events, those are two hours you don't get back. Yeah. And, and male counterparts just have that as a part of their own time to do other stuff where there's just Mm -hmm. not that same expectation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you build those into the schedule, you think about those, but at the same time, it's important that while you're having to spend time on that, that you're also making sure that they can get the same time to work out or that they can get Mm -hmm. the same time to spend time with their family. It's really also it's really important um, to make sure that, you know, particularly for women candidates or women elected officials, you know, that you, that you also understand that many times, like they're the ones planning like a big family get together. They're mm-hmm. the one that is expected to be, even while they're doing these huge jobs, you know, that was certainly a difference I saw when I was working with men versus women that, mm-hmm. that just a lot more of the family conversations about, okay, well, what are we, what are we having for dinner and like cooking this get together? Those would all fall to women. And so at least just understanding and processing that some of those conversations still are going to happen and that you give Mm -hmm. these elected officials space to have those conversations, to see their family that, uh, and, and that you build in, you know, time for presentation, time for all of that that's important to the overall concept of how you just not just run a campaign, but, you know, really make sure that they hold elected office in a way that they feel good about. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting to think about, because I've, I've certainly seen videos of of Vice President Harris making Thanksgiving dinner and stuff, but it never occurred to me that, you know, she's being pulled in so many directions, not just at work, but also at home. So That is really fascinating to think about. Let's also flip back to you for a second. So you are a mother of three. You have had this meteoric rise of working in the mailroom to becoming the chief of staff for the potential next president of our country and 
eventually becoming the domestic policy advisor to the vice president and the deputy assistant to the president. How did you handle all of that? And did you feel imposter syndrome at any point? And, and how do you combat that? Well, I have met, you know, young women all over the country that have certainly shared imposter syndrome. It is no question that I have had the blessing of working for a woman that has reached every, you know, been the first to do so many things. And so mm-hmm. when I would hit different things, you know, I was lucky that I certainly had her also hitting different things as well and got to watch her and observe her handle those with grace. The most important thing, honestly, to me throughout all these years has been trying to make sure that when I'm in a position where I can hire people that have different lived experiences like I did, that I can bring those voices to the table. And so when I was chief of staff in the Senate, it was really important to me that you know, we had a diverse office and that, mm-hmm. you know, we looked at non-traditional things that job employers would look at. So we, we certainly knew people in our office, if they were first generation immigrants, we would know if they, you know, we understood where they were from, what mm-hmm. their family circumstances were, you know, and we did this in ways that were, you know, just all part of getting to know them, but it was, it was, you know, something that I'm very proud of, we were able to, I think, by my tenure have, you know, something we built upon, but it's certainly by my mm-hmm. tenure, we had, I think, 70% people of color. That's uh, amazing. And a majority women in the office. And it was, it just, you know, we've had a lot of people that said, actually, whether they were people of color or not, that said, I feel so comfortable in this office. I feel like mm-hmm. I can be myself and that they're understood. But more importantly, you know, the, at the time, and basically kind of all my years with the vice president, you know, she's really wanted a diversity of opinion. She's wanted people Mm -hmm. that, you know, all, you know, it's not good to have a conversation around her where every single person has the same exact thought, the same way of thinking, because that's just not reflective of the American people. And so, Mm -hmm you know, we would often in her office over the years debate things out. We would give pros and cons. We would argue different sides. We would play devil's advocate on on so many different issues to make sure that we had the full context for, you know, what we were about to make a decision for, which many times could impact millions of people. And so yeah. that's that's really how we thought about it. But then over the years for me, you know, I've sort of thought about it mostly in terms of where can I influence and make sure we're opening the tent in terms of who we're bringing to meet with her, who we're, mm-hmm. you know, where she's going to visit, where um, I'm even spending my time with and making sure that we're just hearing from a diversity of opinions because mm-hmm. even me with my own opinion and experiences, you know, there's so many experiences that I also can learn from others. And so that's mm-hmm. what, you know, I try and bring to the jobs. Yeah, yeah. And an office that is 70% people of color and majority women sounds like the best work environment I can imagine. So, and I also feel that kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation about being from New Jersey, maybe being the only person of color in a room of people that don't look like you and how extra important your voice is. And, and I love too what you said about layering in all the different kinds of diversity to make sure you're really representing 
the people of California and the people of the United States. Okay, so I have one final question for you. This is a question that I'm hoping to ask everybody who comes on the podcast with me. So what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew in the beginning of your career? That's a great question. I have several things. One of them is definitely, I I certainly want to make sure that my my kids know this when they grow up, but you know, it's important before you have children to travel as much as possible. It's it's so much harder to travel. (laughs) I have three children. And so, you know, some people are like, I, I, and this is something I often said, like, I don't have money to travel, just find Mm -hmm. ways like to just get out of your comfort zone and travel. And it's so important to see the world, you know, because it expands so much of your thinking and helps you understand what an interconnected world this is, not just people, but issues. And so a lot of my job has over the years been, you know, it's been a privilege to think about how interconnected all these different issues are. And so if you can learn from one area or one issue, issue policy, you know, you can, you can bring that to another space and come up with some creative solutions to hopefully help people. A big thing I think that's really important for people to understand when they're younger is that there there is value in building up your relationships and investing in them over the years. Certainly I've seen with young people that are whether they're children of immigrants or others that feel part of coming to this sector of politics and policy and all of that is you may have felt like I don't want to go up to that person and I feel weird and, you know, I don't want to mm-hmm. ask, for, you know, I don't want to bother them. That's like a constant thing I, I hear, particularly from younger women and others. And the truth of the matter is, is, and we can all feel like this sometimes, so it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter what age you're at, but it is just really important to build the courage up over time to keep bothering people because it's mm-hmm. the only way to potentially meet people that may change your life. And so, mm-hmm. It is, it's not easy to, you know, all those different moments where you're thinking like, oh, they're, they're talking to somebody else. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. bother them. I mean, frankly, the reason we're doing the podcast is because you waited to talk to me <laughs> after the class. And so yeah. uh, it's, it's important that if you hadn't done it, then I wouldn't be here doing this today. And so things are created yeah. literally by you making the investment in yourself to ask, And part of it, you can just, you know, sort of, you have to just have some blinders on and not be almost, I think so many of us are almost too self-aware. They're thinking so much like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this or I don't want to whatever, but that's essentially you not using your voice. And so you have to just kind of do everything you can to build up that courage inside because so many good things can happen by just you using your voice. And so that's what I would share with everyone. Thank you so much. That is such a beautiful note to end the podcast on. It's such an honor that this is my first podcast ever and I got to do it with you. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. course. Well, thanks for having me and we'll be in touch.